0: Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 16 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall never revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, to the north of the row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, this is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering." and where they shall uh, bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out into the outer court and so transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me out to the outer court, and he led me around to the four corners of the court. And behold, in each corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were small courts, 40 cubits long and 30 broad, and the four were of the same size. On the inside, around each of the four courts, was a row of masonry with hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around Then he said to me, these are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people." Now, this is a section, both of these sections we've already covered in previous parts of our study. We've kind of jumped forward, looked at these verses, and then tied them to where we've already been. So I'm not going to spend too, too much time here. But once again, we see that God gives clear instructions for how to keep the land that he's going to give to each tribe in each tribe or family. And very, very clear that it's to stay. And we need to be reminded that God gave Adam and Eve a beautiful land in the garden uh, to, to live in and to possess, but because of sin and disobedience, they lost that land. They were given that land to work and to live in, but because of the disobedience, they lost it. But God also promised Abraham that he would give him and his descendants a specific parcel of land as his inheritance. But if they disobeyed him, he'd remove them from the land. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 13 and kind of catch you up if you haven't really un- understood this or remind you, if you have about God's promise to Abraham that is being fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. In Genesis chapter 13, look at verses 14 through 17. In Genesis 13 verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Don't forget that. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted. Arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the Oaks of Mamre which are at Hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord. So here we see that God actually promised Abram this whole land that he brought him to and he said look all as far as you can see north south east and west walk the length of it, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants as an inheritance forever." Um, By the way, did Abraham ever receive the land? No. No, he never did. Neither did his son Isaac, who was given the same promise over and over, and Jacob. None of them got to live in the land. It wasn't until the time of Moses and actually Joshua that the nation of Israel after 400 years of slavery in Egypt actually got to fulfill or begin the fulfilling of the promise to get the land as a nation of people. Uh, But go to Deuteronomy chapter six, because I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy six and show you that as God was bringing them into the land, he made very clear that the conditions were, if you obey me, you get to stay in the land and enjoy it. If you don't, I'm going to remove you from it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 25. It says, Now this is the commandment, the <coughs> excuse me, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might." And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full... Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do the commandment before the Lord, our God, as he has commanded us. So here we see, as they're about to go in, Moses is reminding them. Of course, Moses doesn't get to go into the land because of his disobedience. But the nation is told, look, God's going to bring you in. If you obey him, you get to stay in the land and prosper. If you turn away from God and go after other gods, he'll remove you from the land. But actually, it's even more clear. Go back up a couple chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at just verses 25 through 31. Says, When you father children and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear, nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul." When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see what he says to them there? He says, look, if you guys go after any other idols and you make carved images and worship them and make God upset... He's going to remove you from the land and you're going to be scattered to the other nations and you want to worship their gods. You're going to be serving their gods in their land. You won't be in this land. But in the latter days, you're going to seek the Lord. And he's going to bring you back. You'll be few in number, but he'll bring you back and then he'll prosper you. Now, why, according to verse 31, is that the case? Why is that going to happen? According to verse 31. Because of his mercy and his promise to who? Their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Folks, listen closely. If there is no literal millennial kingdom on the earth where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth and the nation of Israel and the Old Testament saints get to come back and be a part of it, if there is no literal time on the earth called the millennial kingdom, which many Christians seem to say there is, is, are millennialists, Then God broke his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob when he said, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land forever. Now, he had told them, if you disobey me, and I'm going to remove you from the land and I'm going to scatter you to the other nations. But in the latter days, I'm going to bring you back. And you're going to seek me with all your heart because I made a promise to your fathers. And I will keep it. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, look. Many are going to come from the east and the west, and they're going to sit at the table in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's going to be a cool time. You say, Jim, where does it say that? Well, you have to come to our Matthew study, because we'll be covering that in our Matthew study starting in two weeks. Do you remember that forever part of God's promise to Abraham about the land in Genesis 13? Well, even if you don't, God does. And he remembers what he said. All right. Now. The neat thing I wrote in my notes here is when Israel is going to be regathered in obedience during the millennial kingdom, God will finally fulfill the full land promised to Abraham, and he won't let any humans mess it up this time. Now, some of you say, well, Jim, haven't they already been regathered? Aren't they back in the land since 1948? Please hear me carefully. What happened in 1948 is awesome because it sets the stage for the prophecies in the end times to be begun, to be fulfilled, because... The prophecies that talk about Israel being scattered from the land in the tribulation period, chased out of Jerusalem, running into the wilderness, two-thirds of them being killed, the Antichrist stepping into the wing of a temple, all those prophecies can't take place unless Israel was in the land. So what 1948 did was make possible for the final fulfillment of the prophecies, but they're going to be scattered again. And that's when he's going to regather them in belief and bring them back into the land, and the millennial kingdom will begin. For many years, people have thought, 1948, the fulfillment of the prophecies. No, it just makes ready the fulfillment of the prophecies. Go to Ezekiel chapter 47, look at verses 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar, Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. By the way, why didn't he just take him out the east gate? Because it's sealed. At that time, Jesus will have been through it and it'll be sealed at that moment. All right, good for you. And, And he toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side of that gate. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water. It was ankle deep. And again, he measured a 1,000 me and, and, and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. And again, he measured a 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again, he measured a 1,000, and it was a river that I couldn't pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, "'Son of man, have you seen this?' Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one, the one side and on the other. And he said to me, "'This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes.'" "'Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englame, "'and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. "'Its fish will be of very many kinds, "'like the fish of the great sea, "'but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. "'They will be left for salt. "'And on the banks, on both sides of the river, "'there will grow all kinds of trees for food. "'Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, "'but they will bear fresh fruit every month, "'because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. "'Their fruit will be for food, "'and their leaves for healing.'" Now, I've got to be honest with you, I've been looking forward to getting to this chapter for a long time, for this reason. I love fresh water. I love living, we live over on the beach side, we live four blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, and I don't mind sitting in a chair watching the ocean. I I can sit and just watch water for days. I seriously love just looking at water. But I'll be honest with you, I don't like the sticky feeling you get after coming out of the beach, coming out of the ocean, and I'm not really into salt water that much. I love fresh water, but I also don't love fresh water in Florida. Because even in Florida, it's not really clear and there's stuff that bites you if you go in the water. And I don't want that. Now, in my travels as a preacher, a lot of times I'll preach up north where there's clearer ponds and lakes. And it's really kind of cool. I'm going to be going this summer to Alton Bay and Lake Winnipesaukee. and going to be preaching there for a week over the 4th of July. An awesome time to be up in New Hampshire. And that lake is so beautiful. It's just unbelievably clear. Parts of it are over 160 feet deep. Just an amazing lake. But years ago, I was preaching up in Virginia in the spring. And there's this golf course that I love to play up there. And it's got a brook that runs through it. And it's so crystal clear. It's gorgeous. And in the spring, because of the melting snow, it's a lot deeper and it flows. And one day as I was playing golf and this brook runs through the whole golf course, I finally came to a point where I said, I'm tired of looking at it. I got to get in the water because that's the way I am. I got to get in it. And so I took off my shoes and my socks and I stopped playing golf and I just sat down on this little bridge and dangled my feet in the water. And as I sat there just letting the cool water run and I just watched it, I looked over and there was a snake right next to me. (laughs) The good news was the snake wasn't interested in me. He was too busy eating a leech. Isn't that crazy? As beautiful as it was, it's still, we're still under the curse. I'm going to tell you right now, mark my words. I'm getting in this river. It starts from the temple as a trickle, and it's going to flow out from the inner sanctuary underneath the threshold, underneath the temple area, outside the eastern gate just south of it, and it's going to again begin to get bigger and bigger. Now, because it's in cubits, a lot of us don't really fully understand, but let me just tell you, the thousand cubits is about a third of a mile. So about a third of a mile east, it's ankle deep. He goes another third of a mile and it's knee deep. He goes another third of a mile, which is now about a mile away from the temple complex and it's waist deep. But then he goes another third and it's so deep you can't cross it unless you have to swim. It's over your head. And it's just an amazing, amazing river that is going to be then flowing to the Dead Sea and it's going to turn the Dead Sea fresh. Has anybody here ever been to the Dead Sea? I've never been to Israel. Have you been to the Dead Sea? You know how it is so salty. You think... What's that? You almost can walk across I mean, you can't sink in the Dead Sea. It's that salty. It's going to turn it fresh. That's how amazing it is. Now, at the same time, many of us don't realize this, but the prophets foretold of this river, not just Ezekiel here, but other prophets foretold of this river. Go with me to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. Verses 17 through 18. Joel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be, future, shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Here we see that there's going to be water coming from the, the house of the Lord, the temple area, and it's going to water the valley of Shittim. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8. Talks about this river that's gonna be flowing. Zechariah 14, verse 8 says this On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea, that's the Dead Sea, and half of them to the Western Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. Now we see a little bit more. Not only is the river gonna flow from the east out from the Temple to the Dead Sea, there's gonna be a river that flows to the Mediterranean Sea as well. It's gonna be an amazing time. Now, let me also say, as with many things in the millennial kingdom, this river is going to be a real, tangible picture of Jesus' cleansing and healing through his spirit. The Bible is full of symbolic language and symbolic pictures. But whenever the Bible uses symbolism, it will explain to you what the symbolism is. And so a lot of people try to just take a lot of the scripture and just make it symbolic. Well that represents this and that represents that. But we're guessing a lot of times. That's why as we've studied Ezekiel and especially the dis- the descriptions of the temple and the land and all this stuff, there's too much specifics for it to be symbolic. Can you imagine trying to come up with what everything represents and what we just read in, just at the end of verse chapter 46 when it talks about the different courts and the masonry and the so many feet long and so many feet square and that's where they do the cooking and over here they can't transmit the holiness and Can you imagine even trying to guess what all that symbolizes? It'd make you nuts. Well guess what, that's not symbolic, it's literal. To be taken literally, it's gonna be actually that size and those things are gonna happen. But the river not only is gonna be literal, it has a symbolic purpose that the scripture's been pointing to all along. Go back to Ezekiel 47 and look at verse 12 again. It says, and on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food, Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from where? From the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Because this water is coming from the sanctuary, coming from the temple, coming from where Jesus is, it's going to be a healing, cleansing type of a river. It's going to turn everything clean. It's going to make everything that touches it thrive and live And I want to take you real quickly through a little bit of a study about this living type of water that's pointing to Jesus. Always has, and it will point back to him as well in the Millennial Kingdom. But go to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus ends up at this well in Samaria, talking with this woman. And in John chapter 4, Look at verse 10. Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says to her, after he says, would you get me a drink? He said, by the way, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you'd have asked me for living water. Now, we've read that all our lives and thought, well, why is Jesus talking crazy? I'm about to show you. He wasn't talking crazy. He wasn't bringing something up to her for the first time. Actually, when he says, you should have asked me for living water, he was saying, I've already shown you in the Old Testament what I'm talking about, but you totally ignored it or you totally missed it. See, for years I read that as if Jesus, because we know from this side of the cross and from this side that Jesus is talking about himself and salvation and all that. But put yourself in her shoes, This guy says, you should have asked me for living water. What are you talking about? Well, he wasn't talking about something she had never heard before. I'm going to show you that in just a second. In John chapter 4, look at verse 14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here he said, you should have asked me for the living water and the water I give you, that living water will spring up into eternal life. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 37 through 39. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But look at what he says. He stands there at the feast. He said, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scriptures have said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Where had the scriptures offered this living water? You can't say John chapter four. Because when Jesus said this, John chapter 4 hadn't been written yet. When Jesus said this, he had only said that to the woman at the well. It hadn't been put down in Scripture. But Jesus stands there at the feast, and pretty much just like he said to the woman, look, I'm not talking gobbledygook here. All along, the Scriptures have pointed to this living water that has been offered for you, and you'd missed it. You should have been asking me for living water if you'd been, I'm going to say it nicely, reading your Bibles. And he says, as the scripture has said, you'll get living water. And out of him will flow, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So I want to take you back and show you where the scripture had said this all along. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm actually going to show you two or three places as we put it together. In Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 13. God, speaking of the nation of Israel, says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what he said? They should have come to me. I'm the fountain of living water. But instead they've filled it up with their own stuff, done their own things instead of turning to me. Go to... Isaiah chapter 12. Look at verses 2 through 3. Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, You will draw water from the wells of salvation. So here we see now, again, as you put it together, the fountain of living water is who? It's God. But Jesus is a good answer because Jesus and God, the Father, are one. But the fountain of living waters is God. And when you draw from that, you receive what? Salvation. Oh, we're not done. Go to Isaiah 44. Look at verses 1 through 5. In Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 5. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Of Israel. Again, here we see, I'm gonna pour out my spirit, and he ties it with the water again, I'm gonna pour out my spirit upon you Israel, and you're gonna prosper and you're gonna flourish. So we see now that there's a fountain of living water, it's God himself, if we drink from that we will receive salvation, and on top of that, when God does pour out this water, he's gonna pour out his spirit. That's why when Jesus stood there, and said in John chapter 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. Oh, that's why he said, As the scripture has said, I've been showing you this all along. This isn't something new that I'm bringing up all of a sudden. Let me take you to one more. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. In Zechariah chapter 13, look at verse 1. On that day... There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This river is literally going to happen, folks, that flows from the temple and gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper and then turns everything it touches healthy and fresh and alive. But it's a picture of what? It's a picture of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and receiving his spirit. By the way, let me just say to you real quickly, and I'll just make a commercial. If you can be there this coming week when I preach and grant on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, i will be doing a whole week of revival on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and how most Christians don't understand what it means to drink of the Holy Spirit. We do for salvation, but we don't understand how to experience those rivers and living water that continually flow from within us that God has offered we're going to have an amazing time, but let me just tell you a lot of Christians don't really understand all that we have been given in the Holy Spirit that God has offered. And we'll, I'm going to spend a week dealing with that next week. And if you're able to be there, come see me afterwards and I'll give you the specifics. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 47. Look at verses 13 through 23. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the great sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, by the way of Hethlon to Libo Hamath and on to Zedad, Barotha, Sibrium, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazar which is on the border of Haran. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazaranan, anan which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath to the north. This shall be the north side. On the east side, the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus, on the Jordan, uh, along the Jordan between Gilead and the land of Israel, to the eastern sea as far as Tamar. This shall be the east side. And on the south side it shall run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribach, Hadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This shall be the south side. And on the west side the great sea shall be the boundary to a point opposite Hamath. This shall be the west side. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now here we see how far the boundaries of the land of Israel will be. Uh, I had a handout for those of you that got here early enough. I ran out. I apologize because our our copier ran out of ink. Uh, But... That caught the handout that I gave you tonight actually has a picture of the comparison of where the the tribes are going to be distributed during the millennial kingdom versus how they were in the first time when they went in the time of Joshua. And there's a big difference. Now if you have your handout from last time we met and we had the two different sides to it, the holy portion and the distribution of land, you have enough at least there to see what we're looking at here. The north side is going to be as far as Hamath, which is north of Damascus by the way, which as you all know because the news is in Syria, and it goes all the way as far south as Meribah Kadesh. The western border is going to be what according to this? The Mediterranean Sea, keep that in mind. Because I'm going to show you something later on that, that makes it that helpful for us to realize the Millennial Kingdom and the New Heaven and the New Earth are two different things. The Millennial Kingdom and the New Heaven and the New Earth are two different things and the Mediterranean Sea is a big help in that. The eastern border is going to be the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea. Now needless to say Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria as well as many other nations today would not be in favor of this, correct? Because their land is going to be given to Israel. But it was already promised to them years ago. And even though during the time of Solomon they had a great amount. They never fully fulfilled the whole area that God promised. It's only going to happen during the Millennial Kingdom. But at this time in the millennial kingdom, the only ones that are going to live in this kingdom will be at this part, in this area of the land will be in the remnant of Jews and as we saw at the end of this chapter, those Gentiles who are pro-Israel and in G- Jesus during the tribulation period. You see, uh, you shall divide his land, verse 21, among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel, and with you shall there be allotted inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his as inheritance, declares the Lord. As we see, some of the Jews are gonna marry non-Jews during this time, and they get to live in that land, but it stays tied to the nation of Israel. All right. There's a lot more to cover, and we gotta finish tonight. So go with me to chapter 48. I'm gonna read to you verses one through twenty-nine. These are the names of the tribes beginning at the northern extreme, beside the way of Hethlon to lebo Hamath, as far as hazor which is on the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath and extending from the east side to the west. Dan gets one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Dan from the east side to the west is going to be Asher's portion. Adjoining to the territory of Asher from the east to the west Naphtali, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Naphtali from the east side to the west Manasseh one portion, adjoining to the territory of Manasseh from the east side to the west Ephraim, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Ephraim from the east side to the west Reuben, one portion adjoining to the territory of Reuben from the east side to the west Judah, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart 25,000 cubits in breadth. This is a section we studied about last week. 25,000 cubits in breadth and the length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the midst of it. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, and 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side, with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge and did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. And it shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place, adjoining to the territory of the Levites, and alongside the territory of the priests. The Levites shall have an allotment 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits in breadth the breadth 20,000, they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land for it is holy to the Lord. The remainder, 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length, shall be for the common use for the city, for dwellings and for open country. In the midst of it shall be the city, which is Jerusalem, and these shall be its measurements. The north side, 4,500 cubits, the south side, 4,500, the east side, 4,500 cubits, and the south side, 4,500 cubits. Sorry. Sorry. East side, 4,000, and the west side, 4,500. And the city shall have open land on the north, 250 cubits, and on the south, 250, on the east, 250, and the west, 250. The remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west, and it shall be alongside the holy portion, "...its produce shall be for food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall till it. The whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square, and that is the holy portion, together with the property of the city." Now what remains on both sides of the holy portion and of the property of the city shall belong to the prince." extending from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the west border parallel to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the prince. Now the holy portion with the sanctuary of the temple shall be in, the midst, in its midst. It shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city which are in the midst of the, which belong to the prince. The portion of the prince shall lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin." Now as for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Benjamin, from the east side to the west, Simeon, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Simeon, from the east side to the west, Issachar, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Issachar, from the east side to the west, Zebulun, one portion. And adjoining to the territory of Zebulun, from the east side to the west, Gad, one portion. And adjoining to the territory of Gad to the south, the boundary shall run from Tamar to the waters of Meribau Kadesh from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. And this is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And these are their portions, declares the Lord God. Now, here we see the specific division uh, areas of division of the land of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, as you see on your handouts, it's totally different than it was during the time that Joshua led them in. But you'll also notice Joseph is not specifically listed As a tribe, look at the tribes there. Joseph is not listed, but actually he is. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 47 and look at verse 13 again. Ezekiel 47 verse 13, Thus says the Lord God, This is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. Does anybody know who the two portions are that are Joseph's? It's Manasseh and Ephraim. Go back with me to, his, uh, to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. As I'm going to set the stage for you as you're going back there. As you remember, Joseph is one of uh, Jacob's sons, and he had been told that Joseph had been killed. Of course, he hadn't been killed. He had been sold as a slave by his brothers. He ends up, after a whole lot of stuff, in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt and he gains power and authority in Egypt... He actually marries someone there, and he produces two sons. It's during this time that Jacob, his father, gets to see not only Joseph again, but he gets to meet his grandsons. But something interesting happens here in Genesis 48. Look at verses 1 through 20. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you of a, a, a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're mine, Joseph, uh, Jacob says, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? "'And Joseph said to his father, "'They're my sons whom God has given me here.' "'And he said, "'Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them.' "'Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see.' "'So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. "'And Israel said to Joseph, "'I never expected to see your face. "'And behold, God has let me see your offspring also.' "'Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth.' And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near them. Now before we go any further, keep in mind what's going on. Ephraim is the younger, and he brings him in his right hand to his father, which now puts Ephraim on his father's left side. Manasseh's the older son. He brings him on Joseph's left side to his father, which now puts Manasseh on Jacob's right side. So that when he puts his hands on them and blesses them, his right hand is going to be on the older son and his left hand is going to be on the younger son. Okay. And Israel, verse 14, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of who? Ephraim, the younger one, who was the younger. And he left in his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and he said the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this long to this day the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless these boys in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, "'Not this way, my father, since this one's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head.' But his father refused and said, "'I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day.'" saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God made you as, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So now we see that Joseph's two sons that were born to him, the first ones who were born to him in Egypt, become sons of Jacob, and they become part of the 12 tribes. So when you see there in your Millennial Kingdom distribution, you say, well, where's Joseph? Actually, he gets two portions. Now you say, wait a minute, that makes 13. But who's missing? What tribe is missing on your map there? Or missing in your list in chapter 48? Levi. How come Levi doesn't get a portion? They do. They're priests, and they get the holy portion. They're the closest to Jesus and the temple and the city of Jerusalem. They get the best spot, and they get to live off of what everybody brings They don't have to work the land. They actually have a great portion. All right? And all their meat is... (laughs) Not all of it. Some of it's cooked on the fire as well. All right. Now, you're also going to notice that Dan is back. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Others of you do. But you see Dan, the northern tribe in the Millennial Kingdom, the tribe of Dan is going to get a portion. But for those that have really studied the Scripture, they've come to realize, wait a minute, Dan's back. You know why they say Dan's back? Go with me to Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, if you remember, and we did our study of Revelation, look at verses 4 through 8. When the 144,000 witnesses go out, remember there are 12,000 Jews from each tribe, go out to be witnesses on the globe during the first part of the tribulation period, it lists them. In verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Then we see Gad, we see Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now here we see Joseph's listed and not Ephraim. But he is listed because that's tied to Joseph. Levi, though, is listed this time. Which tribe's missing? Dan. People have wrestled and wondered, why is Dan not listed as one of the 12 tribes to go out as a witness during the tribulation period? But when you get to the millennial kingdom, Dan's back. Dan disappears during the tribulation period as a tribe producing witnesses, but during the millennial kingdom, he's back. Now, let me just say this to you this way as best I can. The answer to it would take an hour, and we'd still be guessing. I could take the time to walk you through many passages dealing with so many different aspects, and this possibility, and that possibility because of this verse, and this possibility because of that verse, and the best answer is we don't fully know. But this much I can show you briefly from the Scriptures. Most likely, Dan was not usable during the millennial king, sorry, during the tribulation period because of severe idolatry. But they're going to be restored in grace and mercy in the end. You remember, the nation of Israel, he's always had a remnant throughout. And we know that at the end of the tribulation period, all of Israel that survives will be saved and they'll all know the Lord. Dan will be included at that time. But during the tribulation period, there's a strong chance that God doesn't use the tribe of Dan because of their severe idolatry. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 49. When Jacob blesses his sons, he makes a prophecy about each of them. In Genesis chapter 49, we see all the prophecies about each of his sons. And in verse 16 through 18, we see him talk about Dan. And look closely at what he says. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. It makes very clear, Dan is going to ultimately, finally, one day judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. But verse 17 tells us, Dan's going to be a snake in the way, a serpent in the way, it says, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Isn't that an interesting thing to say about your son? As Jacob prophesies over Dan, he says, ultimately Dan is going to be one of the rulers in Israel, and his tribe will ultimately rule and reign as one of the tribes in Israel. But between now and then, he's actually going to be a snake. And he's not going to be good to his brothers He's going to be wicked. But God, I wait for the day you save my boy. Any parents understand a little bit what I'm talking about? You pray for that day of restoration, but you also know there's going to be a rough time period in the meantime. That's what happened to Dan. That's the short answer. Most likely, the reason Dan is not used during the tribulation period as one of the 144,000 witnesses is because of, if you were to do the whole hour study that I told you about, the idolatry and the wickedness in the, in the tribe of Dan was so severe that God couldn't use them during the tribulation period. But God who's rich in mercy and grace is going to restore them. He made a promise and they'll be a part of what he's gonna do in the millennial kingdom. All right. We see that the holy district for the temple and the priests and the city of Jerusalem and the prince will be between the Judah to the north and Benjamin to the south. Let's close our study up now. Go to Ezekiel chapter forty-eight, verses thirty through thirty-five. Ezekiel forty-eight, verses thirty through thirty-five. These shall be the exits of the city. On the North side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, there's going to be three gates. The gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. The gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, there is going to be three gates. The gates of Joseph, the gates of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. And on the South side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, there's going to be three gates. The gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. And on the West side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, there's going to be three gates, the gates of Gad, the gates of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Now, folks, we we started this study 18 months ago, and we now come to the conclusion of Ezekiel. And this is the description of the city of Jerusalem with its dimensions and its gates. Now, this city, if you take these dimensions, is roughly six miles in its perimeter. If you were to measure all the way around the city, it's six miles in perimeter. In the first century, Josephus recorded that Jerusalem was around four miles in perimeter. So at the time of Josephus, the city of Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem was only four miles around. During the Millennial Kingdom, it's going to be six miles around. So it's going to be bigger. There's going to be 12 gates or entrances and exits in and out of the city, and each will have one of the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, let me say something to you here. This is not the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. A lot of people try to say, this is the new Jerusalem. No, no, no. It's another Jerusalem, and it's going to be new, but it's not the new Jerusalem that we see in the book of Revelation. And I can show you why. Go to Revelation chapter 21, and let me show you why (coughs) this is not the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21. Look at verses 9 through 17 in Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me. "'Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb.' "'And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, "'and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, "'coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, "'its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. "'It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, "'and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. "'And on the east there's three gates, and on the north three gates, "'south three gates, and on the west three gates.' The wall was built of jasper while the city was of pure gold and clear glass and the foundations and so on. All right, now, let me just ask you this question. Does anybody know how far 12,000 stadia is, that dimension? It's just short of 1,500 miles. All right, so this city, the new Jerusalem, that's going to come down after the millennial kingdom at the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth, this city has a perimeter Of 5,600 miles. Is it the same city of Jerusalem as the one that's only six miles in perimeter? Not even close. Oh, you remember how we saw in the Millennial Kingdom, the western border of the land of Israel is going to be the Mediterranean Sea? Well, guess what? What does Revelation tell us about the new heaven and the new earth? There's no sea. See, I love Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. If you haven't got it, get it. It's one of the best ever. But the one area that I struggle with Randy Alcorn's book is at the end of his book, he starts to speculate about certain things about heaven from scriptures, whether or not animal or pets will be there and all that kind of stuff. The problem that I have with his book is this, is Randy Alcorn gets some of the millennial kingdom passages mixed up with the new heaven and the new earth passages. And he tries to make the ones that are describing what happens in the millennial kingdom to refer to the new heaven and the new earth. And he even says in the book, he's foggy on that whole aspect. What I want you to see is the millennial kingdom that we've been studying and the temple and the land and Israel is different from the new heaven and the new earth. What you have in Ezekiel at the end is a literal time on the earth that is totally different from the new heaven and the new earth. By the way, you want to have a real idea how big the New Jerusalem is, by the way? Does anybody know how far away the space station is? Yeah, it's less than 300 miles. From here to the space station is less than 300 miles. The city goes 1,500 miles up as well as out and across. If you tried to take that City and just set it on the United States of America, a part of it would stick off one of our borders somewhere. You couldn't fit it. There's no way you could fit it on the continental US without it sticking over. It's going to be an amazing time. And that's going to be the New Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, who's going to live there? All believers, not just Israel. Let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and there's 12 gates, and they are all named after the 12 tribes of Israel. But what are the foundations? The foundations of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, the church. It's a mixture of both, Jew and church believers, Gentiles, they're going to be forever together in the the eternal state. Oh, real quickly though, what's the name of the city uh, there in the millennial kingdom? What's the name of Jerusalem going to be from that time on? The Lord is there. Is he there now? Well, in one sense, yes, in the fact that where can you go that God's not, but at the same time, Jerusalem means what? It means city of peace. Is it a city of peace right now? No, and it won't be for a while. The Bible teaches us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but there won't be any peace until Jesus himself literally comes back to the earth. Oh, there's going to be a false peace. Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant with many, and everybody's going to be saying, peace, peace. And a whole bunch of stuff's going to show that there really isn't peace. Let's close our study with Luke chapter 13. I want to encourage you with all that you've learned in this study and all that you've seen about the nation of Israel and God's plan for them in the past and their obedience and disobedience and their judgment and their restoration in a sense but not totally and the fact that there's a future time coming as we pray for Israel and we pray for all that's going to go on in the globe because of them. Look at Luke 13, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. He's, of course, referring to his death death and resurrection. Nevertheless... Jesus says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. How's that for some sarcasm? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, was Jesus referring to his triumphal entry? Because as you know, when Jesus rode in on the donkey, they all cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Was Jesus saying they won't see him again until the triumphal entry? You're shaking your head no, Mike, you're right. Do you know why the answer is no? Because when Jesus said this, if you go back and look, he's already had his triumphal entry. That's already occurred. This is near the end of that week. And it's time for him to go to the cross. And he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. And what Jesus said is this. Jerusalem, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, don't pray that they'll get along and come up with some solution where they'll stop shooting each other. Pray for Jesus to come back. Pray for Jesus to come back. You know the Bible says between now and then he's going to get us and take us to be with him, but he's got a lot left to do for the nation of Israel. And I pray you'll be praying for that day when Jesus returns. I love you guys. Thanks so much for studying Ezekiel with me. We'll see you in two weeks as we study Matthew.